welcome to the Poetry Space. I'm Katie Dozier, and this is episode 44, where we are going to take a deep dive into some excellent poems. So how are you doing today, Timothy Green, my co-host? Hey, Katie, I'm doing great. Uh, you're right down the hall, which is always nice. And uh, hello, Katie Dozier. Well, I have to say, I'm sitting here with an amazing Americano that you fold all the way to the rim for me. So thank you for filling this up as we get going here. It was a trek. And we're doing uh, the deep dive today. So um, it took a while for me to figure out what exactly we meant by this. And because we do the critique of the week on the Rattlecast, and I was thinking, how is it different? And to me, actually looking at the poems and thinking about it more, um, I don't know about you, but I was thinking about um, what makes a poem great as opposed to very good. You know, there are a lot of very good poems, but some poems are great. And I think it's like the next level of discussion that literary criticism really is about. Um, and so I think maybe what we're really talking about is what makes a poem great, right? Yeah, I definitely think so. And then also just keeping a discussion open, like we were talking about in last week's space, about trying to be more open about things that can be better uh, or things that are really working well in great poems. And then also another thing, as we were looking at the poems together last night, too, that you brought up is just this idea of timelessness and how, you know, the factors that go into making a poem timeless. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. There's a certain level of poem that something like the Critique of the Week or a workshop at a university is doing, where it's to make poems, you know, mean something and be accessible and interesting. And, and that's sort of like one level that poems aspire to, and it's tough enough to do that. But then there's another level above that where poems have this lasting impact. And I think that's the thing that we really should be striving for. It's just really hard to do and doesn't happen. And you have to get lucky, too, which is part of the uh, the thing. You know, you have to for a poem to really touch upon people and go viral, it has to be, you know, the right people have to read it, it has to be, um, you know, anthologized in the right place or, or spread on social media the right way or who knows what. There's so many things that go into that. Someone has to sue you over <laughs> over profanity, maybe, or indecency. So there's that too. But then what, you know, what poems could potentially become those great poems that someone's going to be reading 100 years from now? I think that's a really important question. And that's what criticism should really be talking about, I think. What makes poems really especially meaningful? Yeah, definitely. I think we have uh, a good bunch. I can say that having picked this myself in part today to go ahead and look at, but I think we'll examine all sides of that. Now, with us is Dick Westheimer, who is fortunately frequently on the poetry space. And I think writes many timeless poems that capture me in a way where, you know, I know that, you know, if I'm lucky to still be reading poems 50 years from now, I will read so many of his poems and feel that timelessness and everything. Um, so he's going to share with us a poem that is not quite finished, as he's told me in his view um, to look at today. So how are you doing today, Dick Westheimer? And thank you again for volunteering live mid-space to have your poem looked at today. Well, I, I uh, am happy to be here and hope I'm in for a little bit of criticism. You know, I, I, I know that one of the things we talked about last week was how um, critics are sometimes, or, you know, like criticism is, has disappeared largely because folks are afraid to hurt folks' feelings. And I am here, your, your, your uh, sacrificial lamb as it were uh if 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 that works and i and as you first introduced this tim you talked about timelessness and that's a really important question for uh some of the poetry that i write so i'd be really happy to hear um hear hear uh, uh you know a, um, a critic's perspective on this poem so would you like for me to go ahead and read katie 
Yes, give me just one second, Dick, because I'm going to make sure yours is pinned to the top. So this is um, an even better space, perhaps, to be uh, joining us live so that you can look at the words, too. But of course, if you are listening later on the podcast version, you can go to my Twitter and I will have shared all the poems there, too, in case you want to listen and look at the same time. So uh, I have Twitter, shared it. Twitter is uh, Katie underscore Dozier, by the way, too. Don't forget to say that. Oh, nice job, Tim Green. Thank you for that. <laughs> okay, great. So I pinned it at the top for anyone who wants to uh, read along as Dick Westheimer reads us this poem. So thanks, Dick. Go ahead, anytime. Sure. And one other note uh, for my Twitter refusenik friends, uh, Katie has these poems up on Facebook also, if you're listening on a podcast. Um, here we go. In Kherson, as everywhere, first they come for the libraries. If there were a library where one could borrow stars, where story time took place on a moon of Jupiter or on Mars, and where down the corridor of asteroids there was a room with books about dinosaurs and a cozy corner where a man played a guitar tuned to the key of a little girl snug on her bubby's lap. I would take my grandson there and let him browse the stacks. He might find that one book by Judy Bloom I read to his mom so long ago, or one about Dogger drawn by Shirley Hughes. But I bet he'd choose one about the fire trucks he loves so. He would forget the bully boys back at school, his baby sister knocking down his tower of blocks and missing his mom. And when the missiles came, he and I could hide beneath the piles of books and let them whisper to us tales of before the battles began, of time travelers and immortal girls and boys. When the rescuers arrived and pulled us from the ruin, we would tell them stories we had heard about planets where there are no guns. We would recite to them lines from poems which beat like my heart when my boy is in my arms. One that rhymes fear with something other than here. One, ones where a missing friend is found. One about how the light from distant galaxies left there before our plan, uh, on our planet, there were borders, soldiers, or war. Well, it's clearly a beautiful poem, Dick, and I'm really grateful that you chose to share it with us um, so we can talk in depth uh, more about this. Could you talk to us just about the impetus for the poem before we get into talking more about um, reviewing it? Um, sure. Um, I, you know, was reading the news and saw an article about, uh, when I say reading the news, I'm not sure wh which, probably The Guardian, and saw an article about um, a children's library that had a donation of books by none other than Shirley Hughes's um, uh, uh, descendants to that library, and it turns out that there are uh, that Ukraine is known for its children's libraries, and it also turns out that Russia's war has focused. There have been over five hundred libraries destroyed or damaged, and it's not a coincidence. They target libraries, so that's what the impetus was. Well, already, I mean, and as a function of reviews ability to illuminate poems you know I did not know that about children's libraries spe specifically in the Ukraine so that's very interesting 
and also um, serves to make the poem more impactful. I think it has a lot of a timeless quality to the poem, you know, from the onset. And I know, um, Tim, when we were talking about this last night, it immediately made you think of an Auden poem, right? Yeah, I was thinking about uh, September 1st, 1939, that famous, you know, uh, poem about war that Auden wrote. And, um, and, and the, you know, the way that it functions, there's so many great lines in the poem. Um, and, and so what is, the, what is the thing that makes the Auden poem stand out and last the test of time? was a thing that I was sort of contemplating. And, um, you know, I love for Dick's poem, the first stanza and the last stanza. Um, I love that idea if there were a library uh, where one could borrow stars, where story time took place on a moon of Jupiter. There's great sounds and that just the concept of borrowing stars in a library is such a great image and such a great metaphor. Um, and so I love that. And then at the end, it really ends really well too, calling back to that with uh, one about how the light from distant galaxies left there before on our planet, there were borders, soldiers, or war. And so it, it reminded me a similar sort of topic of that. You know, it's, it's a poet addressing war um, in a way that's trying to be impactful and memorable. And, and it made me think about what is the difference? You know, so there's, there's some similar, some great lines in this. At first I was thinking maybe it's the, the lines of Auden because there are a few poems or a few lines in Auden that are just so memorable. Um, of course, the most famous is the, uh, we must love one another or die. Um, but there are a whole bunch of other lines too, but there's some great lines in Dick's poem. And the difference I think that came to me was that um, um, th there's a sort of a, a confidence and a, and a strength of authority in the voice. And it was something you pointed out, Katie, in Dick's poem was that it uses a, a more passive construction. So it has the, if there were a library where one could borrow stars. And, and if you try to think of the, this poem through the lens of like what, what Auden did, it, I think it would say there is a library where one could borrow stars, right? And, and that would, you know, to, to have that confidence to express it directly, I think is something that makes, would it make this poem a little more timeless in that regard? Yeah, and last night we went through it once I said that and started to kind of construct the lines, like you would have to make some changes uh, Dick later on that are a, a little bit bigger perhaps to accommodate for that but yeah taking it out of I, I'm horrible with the correct grammatical terms but I think it's conditional future and just making it what's going on in the exact moment I think is something that would um, would strengthen the poem um, I am though slightly torn on that because uh, this does feel a bit more like in your natural voice, Dick. So I'm torn because, and I love the reading of it and how it feels more like a little bit drawn out. Um, but I still, I still think that it would be strengthened if it were more set in the, you know, instead of if there were a library where one could borrow stars, which I just love. I'm totally with Tim on that. I, I love the concept of it um, instead of just making it that library instead of conditional on something. Yeah, I mean, just you can hear it, just change of everything. Um, there is a library where one can borrow stars, where a story time takes place on a moon of Jupiter or on Mars. And, you know, and just are, just moving into that um, and where down the corridor of asteroids, there is a room with books. And you're so you're in that place. You're not like imagining the poet imagine. You're actually like put in that place. And there's something about the it, it's more to it than just that, though, because there's something about the having the confidence to actually do that. Uh, you know, it, 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 there's sort of like an authority, like an authoritativeness. There's a, um, in that Richard Hugo um, article, I know Dick heard because he was on the critique of the week last week. We were talking about um, 
that this uh, Richard Hugo essay, and he said that you have to have, um, you have to sort of be arrogant to write poems, you know, and you have to know that the lines connect and, and have confidence in that. And there's so much more confidence in the, in the more direct voice too. And I think that's something that makes the, the great lines that are already there ring more is having like, like not sort of hesitating and not, um, you know, equivocating at all with, by making it hypothetical, but by saying it actually is happening right now. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, when, when someone is like somewhat questioning their own um, version of telling a poem, then of course the reader is going to question it too. I often find myself when I'm editing my own poems, you know, it's also sort of, you know, the difference between, you know, going with a simile versus, you know, just going for the, you know, just putting it out there and removing the like or as and just saying this is this and how, you know, nine times out of 10, that is the better way to express something is just uh, more emphatically because I think in poems too, we're constantly, you know, we're saying this is like this, this is this. And if we're wishy-washy about it, then it becomes, you know, it dilutes the message when the point is in poetry, I think we're making these connections that can't really be made effectively elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, fortune favors the bold, <laughs> you know, and I think it, it, the poems, and we'll see the poems that we, I think it's, to me, the two of the, the four poems that we're sharing today are really timeless. And so you can feel when you read those poems, the boldness and sort of the confidence in, in just laying out an image, putting it in your head and having the, the self-confidence to know that it's gonna be there. And, and it's sort of like, there's a, there's a force to it. And, and there's, it brings the confidence to, to love that kind of force. Yeah, definitely, it does. And um, in terms of to the other aspects for the, for the poem, I think that um, there are a couple of things that, that took me out of it a little bit. Um, with the Judy Bloom reference, I mean, I love Judy Bloom. I've read a lot of Judy Bloom. Um, but then I didn't get the the dogger drawn by Shirley Hughes. And I don't know if that's just generally generationally me. But in terms of looking at what makes a poem timeless, I think it's possible that those two are, um, you know, there is a strength in using specifics to get to timelessness. But I think that these might be, it could just be me, but a little bit um, too specific in a way that makes you wonder why specifically Judy Bloom exactly was chosen or kind of takes me out of the movement of the poem a little bit. Yeah, and not to stretch the the comparison to September 1st, 1939, the Auden poem, uh, but the references he uses there, you know, he calls back to Luther. Uh, I'm just scrolling down. I don't know how to say the, the Greek uh, Thysides, um, but he calls back to, to things that have been around for thousands of years. Um, you know, that are cultural references that sort of exist and stand the test of time, kind of. And um, and so having something that, uh, maybe to me, it's more actually the, you know, when books become a consumer object, like they're like the, the sort of consumerist era, um, talking about that. I think it makes it more fixed in the sort of present moment and, and feel more contemporary versus timeless, given the references of it. And I was wondering if maybe the poem would be stronger, um, you know, sort of, describing what the books might be rather than specifying, even though, you know, we always, a lot of times I say it's important to have specific details. Um, but sometimes I think that, you know, it, it's depending on the tone, you know, and, and the specific details set the time and place in a very tight place. But I think doing that here um, isn't a great service to the poem. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I also the fire trucks reference feels specific, but also incredibly relatable and very timeless. I mean, what toddlers not going to, you know, love fire trucks, but then also, you know, there's deeper meaning with the, the fire trucks, of course, for this particular poem as well. Um, I was also going to say, too, that um, 
for me in the next lines that he would forget the bully boys back at home, his baby sister knocking down his tower of blocks and missing his mom. I, I think that it hits a little bit too hard on the alliter- alliterative bees um, and feels a little bit like um, going into kind of like a poety voice that I think might be, it might be benefited to, to scale that back a little bit and shorten this just a little bit also. Yeah, I think that's a good point too. I think the, the length too, I think it just could be, it basically could be tightened up. You know, it could be, if you look at the next poem we're going to read is Good Bones and how tight and quick that is and how the images just sit there presented with confidence and then let it go. And I think if that had a little more tightening in that, in that direction, um, then it would be stronger too. And I want to emphasize though, it's a good poem already. Like this is like, how do you go to the next level with what's already a good poem? Yeah. And, um, and I think that, you know, there are little tweaks that, to make it tighter and, um, you know, to have a more of a feeling of confidence in the voice, I think, are the, the two things that, that stood out to me as, as ways it could be even more powerful. Yeah, because also to me, the best parts of this poem are the most confidence. I love the first line of the last stanza too, ones that rhyme fear with something other than here. I think that is a brilliant line and I love it. And I love how it unabashedly, you know, rhymes while it's saying it rhymes too. I think it's brilliant. The whole last stanza I think is really excellent. So, I mean, it's pretty cool when you can ask somebody for a poem and know they're going to send you a great one. <laughs> Why Dick Westheimer is one of my favorite poets, period. <laughs> So thanks so much for sharing it with us, Dick. Did you have any questions or comments? Um, no, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of absorbing it. I'm thinking, uh, you know, Katie, I was in touch with you about, you know, a real, uh, a real critic might connect this to other poems um, that the poet has is, is written, and but uh, which is similar to what Tim did with Auden. Uh, and the timelessness question um, so my question for you all and for the uh, for the other folks listening is, if you take out the Judy Bloom and Dogger and Charlie Hughes reference, does it achieve timelessness or um, or or is is it so specific to the time and situation that it, it just sits here in the current moment, which, you know, which is not a, a, a bad thing. It's just not it's not timeless. So that, well, I think would be, to, that would be yeah, my question. To me, to go back to the Auden poem, which I just a really good comparison to this, you know, that's set in the World War, that, that first start of World War II moment. And this, by saying in person, sets it there. But then in both cases, the poem, it's really a, a timeless and it's addressing of war and that aspect of human nature and, and the fact that we just keep doing this over and over again. And I think that that, that makes it both timeless and timed. And the fact that you know, September 1st, 1939 is a poem that was shared, you know, all the time when like the Iraq war started, people were sharing it a lot too. And, and you know, there, it's a poem that comes up every time, you know, there's more war in the news. I'm, I'm sure people are probably sharing it now, given the, um, you know, the war in Gaza. And, um, you know, so I think that, that there's a, both a timelessness and a, and a setting that, that just having that one detail does, like it sets it where you were, that expands across time. If you sort of tighten it up and get, um, you know, I, I think having the, the sort of concept of those books in there, but I think having them be placed because it, it it pulls you out of um, um, you know trying to trying to think about what the references are. You lose a little bit of the feeling of the poem, I think, in those moments. And I think it could have like one stanza less too. And so I think that whole could be tightened up. Yeah, I, I agree t- with what Tim was saying, and I also would say that um, 
having, if you want to keep the specific book reference, I think having one that's more easily placed as to what it means um, specifically, because I was like, oh, Judy Bloom, and like it really took me down that path and away from the poem. So maybe one like, I don't know, I mean, Cat in the Hat is probably too cliche or something for that, but something that, um, you know, maybe Beatrix Potter, something like that, that um, is more easily referenced as to what it means as something you can kind of create an image for in your head and then continue on with the poem, I would say. Yeah, another thing about that too, I was going to mention, forgot, I think the, the title in Curson as Everywhere, First They Come for the Libraries, I think there's an attempt with the as everywhere to make it universalized and, and sort of be worried. You can see like the poet there worrying that's in the moment. And I think, you know, just embrace it. You know, Autumn's poem is just the date where he was writing it and talking about. And here, you know, just saying in Curson, First They Come for the Libraries, we'll get that it's it's about more than just that, you know, going through um, the, the poem as it, as it progresses. Yeah, I would agree too. I think in Kirsten by itself would be a stronger title. And then, and then the impact of the beautiful first line would hit you more too. So thanks for so much for sharing this, Dick. It really is a beautiful poem. And I love how you incorporate astronomy with, with so many of your poems and how that lends itself to be bigger in and of itself right away. So I think you are fantastic at making your poems uh, about very big, timeless things in general, too. Well, well, thanks so much. And I'm really excited to hear how, how we all deal with the next poems. Yeah, and we got to speed this along, Kate. Yeah, Why don't you read? You know, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was enjoying that too much. I told you, though, everybody made fun of me because I was like, we could do one poem for an hour. And everyone's like, one poem for an hour. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> okay. So now we're going to switch gears pretty, pretty big and look at Good Bones by Maggie Smith. Let me just go ahead and I should have already done this so that, but I got so caught up in the discussion that I forgot to uh, pin this. So I'm going to go ahead and pin this. Probably most of you guys have already read this poem, but um, we talked about it in earlier space too, but it went extremely viral. It's one of the absolute, uh, maybe the single most read poem of the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. Um, it was published in 2016, originally in Waxwing, and came out uh, very soon after the Pulse nightclub, nightclub tragedy in Orlando. Okay, good bones. Life is short, so I keep this from my children. Life is short, and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways. A thousand deliciously ill-advised ways I'll keep from my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this for my children. For every bird, there is a stone thrown at a bird. For every love child, a child broken, bagged, sunk in a lake. Life is short, and the world is at least half terrible. And for every kind stranger, there is one who would break you, though I keep this for my children. I'm trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real shithole chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. And that, of course, is by Maggie Smith. So I, I think that this poem, you know, it's one of those poems that uh, went extremely viral and I think deservedly so. I think, you know, reading this poem again, I, I just was struck the most by the repetition. I think it is the best use of repetition of any poem, honestly, I've ever seen, um, which is pretty, pretty high praise coming from me. And I think um, it, it caused me too to examine my own use of repetition you know looking back at Dick's poem one of my favorite part was his his repetition of 
one set in the last stanza and it really does speak to how powerful it is. I know too, um, I was looking at interviews with Maggie Smith and um, one from Slate asked her about her use of repetition specifically in this poem. And she said, I think of repetition in this poem as a way of being a, a way to turn a difficult multifaceted idea in my hands and head, a way to look at an issue from different angles rather than a one or two dimensional way. Repetition here seems to be a way to chip away at the issues in the poem and dig deeper into the speaker's anxiety about the world and what kind of home it will be for her children, which I should say too, she wrote this thinking about it as being kind of a persona poem of a single mother and then later became a single mother herself after her divorce, which she outlined uh, in her very popular divorce memoir, which I actually read as well, <laughs> um, which is where some of my my interest in this poem also came from. So I think I've babbled enough. To... <laughs> you haven't babbled about Katie. And you know a lot about this poem, having read the memoir and written a poem after it yourself, too. Um, but I think the repetition is one of the, the you know, key things to it as well. And we talk a lot about the sense of movement in a poem and how it has to feel like you're going somewhere and what she does. And I think that turning, turning the idea over in her hands that you said from that quote is exactly what happens. But, but by using the repetition to modify what you're talking about has a real sense of sort of forward movement. So like life is short, though I keep this for my children. Life is short and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways. And so, you know, we take the concept of life is short and we use it two different ways. And so it's sort of like, you know, I, I just imagine if you have like, you know, you're like sledding or something and you have to push off the ground. You have to have something like solid to push against to move yourself forward. And the repetition works in that way to have this feeling of being sort of thrust forward um, by the use of that same, you know, the life is short. And there are a bunch of other repetitions for every bird. And then the, the end, of course, the great lines, the last two couplets. So that repetition is used to propel the poem forward. And then the other thing is the, the thing I really noticed, you know, comparing Dick's poem to the Auden poem is uh, that confidence of voice. So it says that it just makes these statements and they're not even true <laughs> most of the time. Um, you know, the, the life is short. It doesn't say, you know, life seems short. There's no equivocation of that. It's just life is short and I've shortened mine. And then, um, you know, the world is at least 50% terrible. And that's a conservative estimate. And she says it in a way that like you believe that that's true. And, you know, it's not really true. For every, um, for every bird, there's a stone thrown at a bird. Um, you know, it's the confidence that she says, those statements that are blunt and matter of fact and spit out like there's no hesitation in, in saying that, even though it's, you know, not something that's literally true. And I think that, that the confidence in the voice to do that is something that makes the poem really powerful, where it, it you know, you feel like you know, we talk sometimes about poems being a dance. And, and I only know I took dance lessons once, like a, just a duet dance class. And be the, to be the lead, to be like strong and confident in your movements is like the most important thing, apparently. And, um, and, and because then you have, then your partner can do stuff off of that. And it's the confidence that you're moving around through that, that allows the whole thing to work. And I think it's the same kind of way. It's a dance with the author. And then the confidence is what allows you to let their voice enter your body, which is what a poem is, and then dance with it. And so having that confidence to just say these statements very bluntly and matter-of-factly I mean, you'll see that in the last poem, especially, too, that we're going to be talking about today. But but that confidence is a real key to making the poems, you know, not just really good poems like in an MFA and in a literary magazine sense, but a poem that can really resonate with the, the general population and, and have meaning culturally. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it is so plain speaking, you know, to start a poem with life is short, 
you know, a cliche. And yet it totally works because it's how people actually speak. And also she wrote this. So Maggie Smith usually spends like a lot of time on her poems. This, she sat down at a Starbucks. Like she had a very short amount of time. I think her husband was watching the kids or something. And she was like at Starbucks writing it. And when you think about that and like the choppy sentences and how you can totally picture her just like, you know, putting this out there because it's the whole thing. It's like, a, I can kind of imagine in my head, like I'm sitting down. She's like, listen, I got to tell you something, Katie. Life is short. <laughs> you know, like she's just laying it out there. And it's, it's so deliciously compact in that way. Yeah, it, there's a feel like she's talking, you know, confidently to a friend, like both confidently and in confidence. Uh, I mean, that's the sort of the tone of the poem, you know, trying to explain, you know, her life um, to somebody in an intimate way. And I think we feel that with the way the poem's presented, too. Um, and, and it's really interesting, too. I think, um, you know, this poem is written really quickly in one sitting. I think the last poem, I would be surprised if it wasn't as well. I think sometimes we just find the poems that, that tap right into the, something that our subconscious wants to speak. And that's something that this poem does. I think that's something that the last poem um, does as well. And, and, you know, you can feel the way that it just sort of lays itself out. And what I was talking about before, you know, the confidence to put the images out there and let them sit, you know, there are only a few images in this poem and they're not elaborated on at all. I mean, there's the, um, there's the, the bird and a stone thrown at the bird. Um, there's the child bag sunk in a lake. And then there's the house, you know, with the good bones. And that's kind of it. And they don't, it doesn't linger on those at all. It doesn't, you know, poetically elaborate on any kind of, you know, metaphors for how they look or anything like that. It just throws them out there, lets them have an impact on you, and then moves on. And I think that's kind of the, the, the way that that symbolically based right brain that's holistic and understands more than we know, which is what we're really talking about when we talk about the subconscious, that's how it speaks, because it, it lives in a world of symbolism. And when the poems come out quick, they're letting the symbols speak on their own and trusting that they speak the message that they want to speak. And I think that's one of the main reasons they're so powerful. Yeah, I think that she employs a real trust of the reader to follow her on this journey through doing that. And if she had expanded on the images, they would have been, I mean, they're horrific images, of course, and it would have taken this in a totally different direction, which to me, this is a poem, you know, of, of ultimately hope of realistic hope. And that's part of why it resonated so much with the world when it came out right after the Pulse nightclub shooting that was so devastating and horrific, you know, finding this this thought, this vein of hope in a way that's not just, you know, hunky-dory, everything's actually great, but, you know, that we can improve upon this and, and looking for that. I, I think that with the repetition too, there's some that's even kind of hidden as callbacks. So for example, when she says for every bird, there is a stone thrown at a bird. And then later, you know, the realtor is chirping, the bird has come back and it's very subtle. Um, I think that also, I really like the way with her repetition that sometimes she boldly places like in the first two lines, life is short right by each other. So you know exactly that it's repeating. And then sometimes she modifies it a, a little bit. You know, it's almost like she's made a formal verse poem out, out of free verse in a way with the amount of repetition that she's employed. Yeah, other callbacks too. I mean, the the I didn't notice this until just looking at it last night. But the it's good bones and the the child broken bag sunk in a lake. I and mean, what's broken are the bones. So it doesn't even mention the bones there. But that's also a callback. Uh, and the idea of the you know so the whole house metaphor becomes our own body at the same time is where you know we have good bones. Yeah, completely. And her turns are you know in this poem achieves that brilliant 
balance of both being surprising and expected. Expected in so much as like you're talking about with the bones as referring to something that makes sense immediately, you know, after, but also because of the fact that it is interwoven. So do you have any, you know, criticism of this poem, negative criticism or things that are, there could be better about it? Because, um, you know, it's hard to think of that for this one. It is certainly hard to think about this in terms of that. I think that if I was going through with like, you have to change something, you have to make it better. Um, then I think that maybe there are some very small words that could be cut throughout it, but then we would lose the conversational poem. And I'm, I'm, it's so rare that I say that about a poem, um, but it's sort of brazen in its conversational style. And when you start you know, getting into minutia of craft, then you lose what I think is the biggest strength of the poem. Yeah, the, the one line that I think I, I'm not sure about, I don't know what it adds, and I think it's a little clunky, is that that's a conservative estimate. Um, you know, why that, it almost feels like what that adds is like the line breaks and spacing, because it wouldn't fit quite right. But if the line was just, you know, uh, you know, I broke it, or a thousand deliciously ill-advised ways I'll keep for my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, though I keep this for my children. That, that, that's a conservative estimate. Um, it's a little bit out of the voice, out of the register, and it's a lot of syllables crammed up in there, a little bit hard to read. And I wonder, um, you know, if that could be smoothed or even cut, you know, so I, I, if I stretch for something, that's the thing that I, I look at. Yeah, I can, I can see that. But I think, though, if you cut that, then you run into the problem of then the repetition of though I keep this from my children is too close. Also, I feel like part of why this poem became so successful was she, you know, she got the critics of the world basically on her side like no really it's awful I'm, I'm just being conservative and I kind of I kind of like that it's a weird aside that a friend might say to you where it's suddenly more formal than everything else they're saying when you're sitting at the Starbucks you know where like they're really trying to convince you you know yeah, yeah I mean maybe it does add to the tone it is hard to even you know nitpick about anything for this poem I think it really it's it works in a way and and the, the way that it you know, a great poem comes just, just suddenly because it's that subconscious speaking. Yeah, completely. It definitely does. And we, you know, we'd love to hear from anybody else that has things to say about this poem too. It doesn't have to be just us. <laughs> we are giving well, I think only me you and Dick are speakers. So anybody has to raise or, or request to speak. I will permit you to speak, my good sirs and madams, <laughs> yes, if you want to. But yeah, I, I think it's really just, you know, a poem that, I'm sad for the reasons, of course, that it contributed to it going viral. But, you know, it it was a, a life-changing poem, I think, for a lot of people. I mean, for, for Maggie Smith, it ended up being, you know, as it said in her memoir, part of why she ended up getting a divorce later. Um, you know, she instantly became, like, the most well-known poet from this poem. And her husband was really not supportive of her, and it sent her down a whole path. So, it's definitely um, interesting, too, as an aside, that she wrote this as a persona poem about being a single mother and then became actually a single mother later on, too. Well, do you want to move on to the next poem, Katie? Yes. We are next going to be looking at Moon Guzzle by Dorian Lux, which I have read on the space before, and you are going to read for us, I believe, today, Tim. Yeah, I'd be happy to read this one. I, you know, you pulled it out uh, to me. I think this is from, yeah, this is from December 2022. So a year goes issue of poetry. And at the time you said, oh, I love this new poem. It's a guzzle from Dorian Lux. And so here it is anyway. This is Moon Guzzle. I can't remember the first time I saw it. Seems it was always there, even with me in the womb, the moon. 
It must have been night above the ocean, making a path on the waves, gilded invitation, the parchment moon. Or the day moon, see-through wafer over desert, caught in the arms of Seguro, thin-skinned, heart-stuck moon. Blue as new milk, aquarium water, Mexican tile, blue as cold-bitten fingertips, nail beds, quick blue arcs, half-moons. How I felt when I saw my first-grown boy, round-eyed, all sinew and muscle, his calves, his bicep, plump as moons. Buttons, doorknobs, volleyballs, clocks, egg yolk, orange slice, violet iris, our planet of pupil, moat in the eye of the moon. The cell inside me splitting and splitting, worm of the fetus, tadpole, the glazed orb of the eye, my belly taut as the moon. The blood-streaked moon of her head pushing through, moons of the faces above me, urging me, pulling, promising the moon. There are earthquakes on the moon, water, not geologically dead, still acting like a planet, upheaval, turmoil, shaking her head, the moon. When I see the earth of you, I still feel moonquakes. Even now, after many moons, my round breasts swoon, your fingertips, small moons. So that was Moon Guzzle by Dorian Lux. And, and Kitty, so when you pull this out of poetry, so I remember you, I think you might have even read it to me over the phone or something because you liked it. What was it that stood out for you? Well, it is true. I was like really excited to see it. Well, first of all, I mean, to be frank, Dorian Lux is one of my favorite poets. So there was that. And I was really excited to see she had like three new poems in poetry. Yeah. And this was, I believe, last year you were saying. Um, and what stood out to me was, first of all, she's known for writing about the moon. So I, I love that she wanted to continue to explore that. And I think that a guzzle is, a, you know, using the moon as the, I want to use the correct term, so I want to look at it. Uh, the word or phrase that each couplet ends on is called the radif. I really should know this. It should have been planted in my brain from the guzzle space we did, but unfortunately, I still have to look at what the terms are called. But anyway, the idea of using the moon that way, uh, I think, was really impactful. And then, in particular, I love when the poem becomes blatantly a love poem, um, which doesn't really happen until for me at least, you know, pretty far into it where we're like, I don't know, four or so couplets left. And I, I really love uh, the last stanza, the last two couplets of when I see the earth of you, I still feel moonquakes even now after so many moons, my round breath swoon, your fingertips, small moons. I also love that she wasn't afraid to repeat moon multiple times throughout, um, not just using it at the end you know, of the couplets too. So I think, um, you know, she's, she's one of the best poets at creating images for me. And she definitely did that multiple times uh, in this particular poem, which I think is a lot of the strength of it. Yeah, I think so too. There's just the, the sounds too. I love, um, you know, it doesn't use that rhyme and I, I don't even know what the, <laughs> what the word for the rhyming part of the guzzle is. I'm sure you do, Katie. Um, Coffee, yeah, because I'm staring at it on our notes. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I could I could never keep track of them anyway either. But um, but it, it does have a lot of ooh sounds. You know, there's the um the blue is new milk, the Mexican tile blue is bitten. You know, and so it's got the oohs, the quick blue arcs, uh, the sinew. So a lot of these there's a rhyme that runs through even though it's not regular. And so all those moon rhymes and those, that ooh sounds are really great in the poem. It's a great musicality and great details, too, which really stands out. I mean, it's a really vivid poem. And, you know, talking about something that, you know, people have been writing about forever. It's like a, you know, a joke. There's so many moon poems, moon haiku, you know, and still finding new ways to say things about the moon. 
that are beautiful uh, is a really wonderful thing. Um, the thing that I think though this poem, you know, is the same level of like very good poem and as opposed to one of those great timeless poems. I think it's missing a few things that could make the poem really take off too. You know, we talked in the like wonderful Guzzle episode with Shannon Mann and Karen Kapoor about the way that the Guzzle is working. It does have the, at least each couplet is a distinct, um, you know, unit. Uh, you know, where it does have some jumps, even though there's a little bit, there's a lot of connection, not a lot of leaping. Um, but the whole thing of the, the guzzle is that the ways you can stray so far. And I think the poem doesn't really stray as far as it could around the different topics and, and you know, have different attitudes and moods and feelings relating to the moon. Like it's sort of conjuring this space where we're all looking at the moon. Um, and there's such an opportunity to have it be different things going on in different moods and different ways of seeing it. And I think it doesn't really do that. It, it sort of has a, a, even though it like shifts a little bit uh, from a one note con, you know, there's sort of a, a one perspective concept to it where it could be expanded a lot more and be a lot more interesting with bigger cuts and leaps between the sections. Um, on the contrary though, it could also, I think be stronger if it just stuck to one, the love poems aspect. So I think, it, it, you know, cause uh, several, I think the best couplets are the love poem type couplets at the very end. Um, and then the very first one too. And and then as it strays slightly, but not a lot, it doesn't get the benefit of huge leaps, but it doesn't get the benefit of staying on a single topic either. And so it's a little bit, you know, more, you know, nebulous than it, than it could be for the, for the, you know, the most powerful timeless poem. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that it almost feels like the way she uses the refrain of the moon almost feels more um, like it's, using it as a way to make kind of a list poem about the moon as opposed to a guzzle. And I really do miss, you know, having the rhyming phrase before the moon. I was excited to see what she did with that. And then I was, you know, on the second stanza and realized that was not going to be happening. I think of this as being kind of like an American guzzle, if I can say it like that, is how I'm, how I process it. Cause it's also missing the direct, you know, usually third person call to herself at the end of the poem, which I've grown to love and expect as part of a guzzle also. So I mean, that's, well, I have that's... to defend it. I have to defend it in that regard because it is come closer than most people do <laughs> with guzzles. I mean, it actually, I mean, usually it's just end the every couplet with the same word and that's enough. <laughs> and this at least has discrete units. Um, and that's like the main point. So at least it does that. <laughs> yeah, I just think, I think it relies too much on, um, adjectives a little bit to put in front of the moon um and that the strongest stanzas are the ones where she goes beyond that in order to do it so i think it's funny that we're in a situation where um i'm saying that it's too americanized in the version of a form where all i write is basically american sonnets and tim's always like it should be a real song <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I definitely, for me, I always prefer things that either either stick to the form um, in, in, you know, as much of the guidelines as you can, or divert from it for, for real reasons, you know, so that the, uh, the idea that, that Americans are lazy <laughs> makes me, it's just a little bit much. Um, and, and I think that dropping different characteristics is something I'd prefer not to do, but it is much better than the typical American guzzle. And then I would be remiss if, like, there's one tiny little thing about this poem that I've complained about to Tim more than probably any single thing in a poem ever. 
which is yeah really the one single letter, <laughs> one single <laughs> never letter. has one letter been yeah. more. <laughs> okay, so yeah. so I'm gonna read I'm gonna read two versions of the same couplet, okay, and everybody can decide which one they think is better, okay? Or the day moon see through e wafer over desert caught in the arms of saguaro thin skinned heart struck moon. Now ignore the fact that I can't actually pronounce that type of cactus. We're gonna ignore. <laughs> Or, okay, or the day moon, see-through wafer over desert, caught in the arms of cactus. We're going to skip that word for the second thing. But my tiny, minute thing is just that I I don't understand why she went with see-through-y as opposed to see-through. Um, it really took me out when I read it. And, you know, I wish I could ask her herself why she did that, because she's a brilliant poet and probably has a reason. <laughs> Yeah, it, it looks strange on the page, and it also it's trippy in your mouth too. Uh, or the day moon, see through e wafer <laughs> over desert. Yeah, yeah, it just see through. Uh, it, it doesn't add anything. I don't understand it. There's a very strange, um, a strange addition to that line. Yeah, and I mean, there's a cost for anything looking weird. So if if you want it, you know, if you want it like that, there needs to be a very specific reason or something you think is making it a lot better. Um, and I, I've tried to find it. I'm not been able to find it. Maybe somebody listening right now knows and it's like, wow, Katie knows nothing. <laughs> I, even, I even wondered, I have to say, there's a poem of mine that was in um, uh, some, I think like the Florida Review actually from your stomping around this, Katie. And at some point, somebody must have leaned on a keyboard because there's a zero right in the middle of a word in the poem. <laughs> and I even wondered if it was just like an accidental addition and just nobody had the you know, courage to, to tell Dory that, uh, you know, it shouldn't have been there. And then, you know, she didn't notice and it just went through it this way. <laughs> <laughs> well, she should be friends with me because I'd tell her. <laughs> I can both, both uh, have reverence for her and tell her too. So, yeah. All right. Well, I think that I'm glad we got to look at that poem more in depth because we did talk about it and like way long ago in the poetry space. Now that we're coming up on having done this for almost a year, which is really exciting. Uh, but I think it's, a great poem, just like you were saying, Tim, but it's not quite at the level, you know, of, of some of the other ones we're looking at right now. Yeah, and just say again, I mean, you know, being a poem that's good is rare and, and worth applauding. And, it, you know, Dick's poem is great, too. And it, it's a it's a next level from up from something we would talk about in a workshop to, um, you know, what's really, you know, at the heart of propelling a poem to the best it could possibly be. And yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to love about it. And enough that you, you know, in the whole multiple issues of poetry you'd been looking through was one that stood out over those months. Yeah, it definitely is. And I mean, I, I think it's really important to be able to have these conversations that are like, this is a great poem, but it, you know, it could maybe be improved upon in this particular way, because that's how, you know, we can continue to get better as poets. And now, you know, I'm going to be damn sure I'm not adding an unnecessary why in one of my poems so that I'm hypocritical. <laughs> Well, we should do the last poem. Can you want to read that one? Sure. So this last one is called Fuck Your Lecture on Craft, My People Are Dying by Noor Hindi. Colonizers write about flowers. I tell you about children throwing rocks at Israeli tanks seconds before becoming daisies. I want to be like those poets who care about the moon. Palestinians don't see the moon from jail cells and prisons. It's so beautiful, the moon. They're so beautiful, the flowers. I pick flowers for my dead father when I'm sad. He watches Algeria all day. 
I wish Jessica would stop texting me happy Ramadan. I know I'm American because when I walk into a room, something dies. Metaphors about death are for poets who think ghosts care about sound. When I die, I promise to haunt you forever. One day, I'll write about the flowers like we own them. So this was suggested when we were asking for poems to look at on your Facebook. And I, I read it a while ago, but I hadn't seen it seen it in a while. And Tim, I think you saw it after it first came out. It was published in December 2020 by Poetry. Yeah, I remember seeing it. I thought at the time that that was the best poem they've published in years. Um, and I think uh, it's just an amazingly powerful poem. And it does a lot of the things, if you look through it, a lot of the things that the Maggie Smith poem does. I mean, it captures, uh, one thing we didn't talk about in a poem sort of vaulting into that timeless poem that we'll read 100 years from now, is tapping into the zeitgeist. You know, we did a little bit with a, with a Maggie Smith poem, you know, after the Pulse nightclub shooting. This too, there's a, there's a way that we're all feeling about involving ourselves in these sort of things as frivolous as writing poems when there's so much tragedy and destruction going on in the world. And so it taps into that emotion um, really well. And then it does it in this really, you know, bluntly stated, powerful way with supreme confidence in the same way that the Maggie Smith poem does. Um, the same way of, of turning it. There's a different sort of technique for turning and propelling the poem forward, but there's the same quickness and speed of movement too. Every line, um, I think there's only one actual moment of enjambment, but the second and third lines enjam, the rest is just all end stop rhyme or, or end stop lines that end in periods. Um, so there's stop, 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 stop. But every time, um, kind of in the same way that Maggie Smith had that repetition, every time you do a full stop at the end of a line, it comments and turns on what you what you expected. You know, there's sort of a, a intellectual or emotional enjambment going on, even though there's no syntactical enjambment. And so that propels the poem forward in the same way with these really confident one-line blunt statements that don't equivocate at all. And so, um, so I think that that has a lot in common with the Maggie Smith when you hold them up together. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I also think that what's interesting about both is that they are both self-implicating, you know, and Good Bones, Maggie Smith says, you know, she shortened her own life. That's probably because she was like sitting in front of like a delicious Starbucks drink because we know she was at Starbucks when she wrote it and thinking like, I'm shortening my life with this delicious chai latte with tons of sugar, whatever it is she drinks. But she implicates herself in that. And then Noor Hindi, being a Palestinian American, you know, is implicating herself by saying, you know, that the brilliant line, which is easily my favorite line of the poem, I know I'm American because when I walk into a room, something dies. I mean, what a profound declaration where, you know, she's she's an American and she's, she's talking about that, um, you know, herself and feeling this immense, you know, struggle of feeling like a colonizer, but being anti-colonizer also at the same time. Yeah, and the, um, th that bluntness too, is um is something you know because it has such confidence in saying things just like the maggie smith poem it's saying things i actually think are not true um you know with a with good bones you know it's demonstrably untrue that the world is that bad i mean that the world you know you can go through and look statistically and you know quantitatively at every single like metric we are living the safest happiest healthiest most tolerant time in the history of the human race the reason why we notice the bad is because for the first time in history you know, there's enough good that we see the bad as bad. And so it's sort of one of those things that, and so with the Maggie Smith poem, it does that with this, you know, colonizers write about flowers, uh, you know, that idea that, you know, that 
uh, any poets anywhere are just writing about flowers is complete nonsense. You know, I mean, we had that whole episode about Emily Dickinson who loved flowers and chronicling all that. She was writing about death, you know, and trying to come to terms with mortality, you know, in the modern industrial scientist, scientific era. Um, so she was talking about life and death too through the flowers. Everybody, Whitman's Leaves of Grass, the grass are talking about life and death. It's not like it's, um, you know, just somebody describing the various petals <laughs> or something that, that, that if there ever is a poem that's written just about flowers, it's boring as hell and no one would read it. It's always about something big and important like that. But because it's said with such confidence and such sort of power and force and authority, I take it and don't care that I disagree. Like that whole thing, the whole concept and the perspective just embeds itself within me. And any disagreement I have, I'm just taken along with the poem and don't mind that at all. But would you say I was reading too much into it if I said that she was intentionally like saying they write about flowers as like some sort of construct and that's what people believe because in the next line, she says, I tell you about children throwing rocks at Israeli tanks seconds before becoming daisies. So speaking about children dying, you know, obviously and becoming daisies, therefore talking about how really when she's talking about daisies, she's talking about death. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think in, in this poem too, I would be surprised if it wasn't written really quickly in the same way uh, where it's that symbolic part of your brain speaking you know, directly about it. And I think that the self-implication and the, the way that, you know, I'm using the things that I'm talking about that is all wrapped up in what the poem is really about on this really deep, you know, psychological level that is really difficult to articulate. And I think that's what makes the poem powerful and why the poem probably came out in a rush and, and why it's so has so much impact because it's, it's, you know, the, the subconscious of, of Noor Hindi speaking to my subconscious, those two solitudes touching, you know, what, what great poetry does. And, um, and, and it's, it's that aspect of it, you know, so it's the way that it's sort of talking to itself because it's, it's speaking in this holistic way that the uh, deeper mind does. Definitely. I mean, for me, what I take from this poem and the meaning that I find in it is just that um, almost everything is hypocritical in a way. You know, it's called Fuck Your Lecture and Cross My People Are Dying. And then this is an American sonnet that is so full of excellent craft, you know, of course. So it's you know, self, self-deprecating almost in, in that way, too. You know, it, it's full of craft, it's full of repetition. And then it. I think that for me, this poem has even tighter, better turns than Good Bones. You know, the, the jump to the moon, it's almost like a haiku leap after every single line. And, you know, the in-stop rhymes make it feel so incredibly punchy and impactful that it's the kind of thing, like you finish this poem and you're like, well, what just hit me? I need to read this again immediately. Yeah, you can see what I think the uh, moon guzzle is missing in the, in the way that these turn, you know, the you know, Palestinians don't see the moon from jail cells and prisons. I mean, it's such a political charge, powerful statement. And then it says it's so beautiful, the moon. It's almost like it's a totally different voice referencing that moon. So that's how the ideas have a jam. You know, that's what I was talking about. Uh, but it's almost like a different voice. And it exp- expresses a sort of inner turmoil within, you know, both an individual and a culture um, because of the way it turns and moves and twists so fast. Every line is like a turn. And I think that's the the element that was missing in the in Dorian's poem that, as good as it is, you know, could have made a poem that had even more power if it found ways to to maximize that that turning and that pressure that that complex complexity. Yeah, definitely. I also think that um, 
both fuck your lecture on craft my people are dying and good bones have a great full circle feel to them with the end of the poem you know referencing either the title or the very beginning of the poem in nor hindi's case and you know being a full circle poem is it's really easy to overdo you know and feel like trite or like it's come too round and too full circle but both of these are just they're satisfying endings and again a little bit unexpected um, but also expected all at once, which is so much of what goes into a really powerful poem. Yeah, it was really fascinating to me to, to think about it from this perspective, you know, to look at two poems that are good and then two poems that really went viral and became cultural moments, I think, that they they did, or at least I'm not sure if the the last poem here, how how impactful that was. I know that everybody read it. That's the kind of poem that's going to stay with them forever. And, and it's it's just it's that powerful of a poem. And, you know, and it's the kind of poem, too, I've, I've mentioned this before, but when a poem um, is really powerful, it, it moves people in, in both uh, positive ways and negative ways. Like some people resist that cognitive dissonance that it forces down your throat when you read a really powerful poem. Um, but either way, they're moved and changed uh, by experiencing this one. I think it's such, such a powerful one. But to look at the, what, how they function um, compared to poems that are very good and look at that, the, the differences between them is really interesting. Yeah, it definitely is. And I know too, when I'm writing, I have a sense if I'm writing for something that's like, I feel like <laughs> there's, there's stuff that's like, it's kind of capped at a level and I'll be like two lines in and realize that this poem has no potential to be great and just kind of move on to one where maybe I'll be able to reach higher. And I think breaking down what helped these particular poems to reach higher um, is, is very interesting, especially because they have so much in common, but they're also like ostensibly very different poems. You know, this is not about do you agree with the content of the poems? Um, we should be able to appreciate poems even when we disagree with the content of the poems. I mean, I adamantly disagree with much of, of Good Bones. I think the world is a very good place, even with the atrocities going on still, um, which is part of why I wrote the after poem to it, because I do disagree with that, even though I think it is a brilliant poem. Yeah, I think it's important to note, too, that not every poem has to strive for timelessness. You know, I think there's a, on one level, there's the poems in Light magazine, you know, that just are amusing and fun. And I think that's great, too, and everything in between. But, you know, some poems, and, and a lot of us are trying to write poems that are great, and how do you do that? And, and what do those poems have in common? I think it's, it's fun to listen, learn, look at and think about in a deep dive today, Katie. Yeah, definitely. I had a great time doing it. You know that one of my favorite things in the world is obsessively looking at poems. So thank you, everybody, for indulging me today on that point. You, Tim, most of all, of course, because we also talked about it last night. So, Well, you know, I really, I, I love the poetry space because I get to learn things, too. And, and I hadn't really thought about things in this way. So it was really fun for me. Oh, great. Well... Next week, unfortunately, we are not going to be able to do the show because I'm flying literally during during the space. But next week, what are we going to look at some? Oh, yeah, the, the week, week after. after. <laughs> the 28th. <laughs> the week between, yeah. yeah. The week between Christmas and New Year's, we are going to talk about occasional poems. You know, so there are a lot this time of year between all the different holidays, um, a lot of New Year's poems. I'm sure we get a lot looking at that for uh, Poetry Spawn. And it's a difficult thing to do to write a poem for a specific time or event. It's a, it, you know, it requires a different thing. I mean, other ones we can look at are, um, you know, the inaugural poems. There's, there's times where you have to write a poem for a wedding and how do you get that to work? It, it's a different type of thing. It's not easy to do, uh, you know, and there's talk about that. We can, we can discuss and share some of those occasional poems and, and see how they work or not. 
Yeah. And it's super important because people outside of poetry, like that is most of the exposure that they routinely get to, you know, two poems, unless it's Twist the Night Before Christmas, you know, that, that is how it's popping up. Um, and how people look to poetry, of course, during these impactful, big emotional times too. So I'm really excited to look at those. I don't know that much, honestly, about occasional poems too. So I'm excited to have an excuse to look at them over the next two weeks. I also want to thank Dick Westheimer again for sharing his great poem with us and allowing us to pick it apart into minutia what's already a great poem. And I really appreciate you volunteering, Dick, and also just how much you contribute to the poetry space in general. So thanks again for that. And thanks, of course, to everybody for joining us today. And so we will see you guys in two weeks to talk about your favorite occasional poems. So in the meantime, happy holidays to everybody and hope you're doing great. Take care. See you later, everybody. Thanks again. Happy holidays. Bye. Bye.